why a brewery? How, how, how did that all begin? Uh, it was all, it was all me. It was all my brain. <laughs> um, I, when I graduated college, uh, or when we graduated college at, at Penn State, um, we were driving cross country because we did not have jobs. And my mom said, come live out in California. And we figured why not? So we drove cross country and we stopped at New Belgium before like before their huge expansion that they have now. And I was still like, I want to do this. This is this is what I want to do. And he's like, do what? I don't understand. I'm like this, I want to have all of this. He's like, let's use our degrees. We just got like continue on fine. And then I started looking into um, brewery programs and still it was just kind of like, let's use our degrees. And my mom kind of being like, mm, do you really want to be in beer? Do you, you know, and I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> well, what, but, what were your degrees at? Uh, I have <laughs> my undergrad is telecommunications and then my graduate is telecommunications, but with a focus in contemporary first amendment theory. So, <laughs> you know, um, not first amendment theory beer yeah I exactly mean, you know yeah <laughs> i can uh, see the connection exactly yeah so um but i like i just continue to enjoy beer and like there was one craft bar um at penn state and it was called zeno's and they did like an around the world and 80 beers passport so each they gave you like a paper passport and each beer they kind of um, wrote it down got a t-shirt your name on the plaque on the wall in the bar and so i like looking back now i saw the passport i'm like i drank so many good beers and didn't even know it so and your name's uh, still there on the plaque. yeah my name's yeah. still on the plaque i was gonna say yeah. i mean like that's gotta be a, that's a goal for a lot of people is yeah. to get either the name on the wall uh name on a mug have your yeah. own mug at exactly. a place you know yeah. that sort of thing so congratulations thank you I think <laughs> and i also got a shirt like a t-shirt i'm like I barely wear it because like this is the most expensive T-shirt theoretically that I own for all the money that I spent on the beer. I think that was also at an interesting point. So we're dating ourselves now, but this is in like 2003, 2004, 2005 period, and it was right before the American craft beer industry kind of blew up. And so this was a bar where it was still kind of focused on imported beer. And I think like you know for a previous generation, good beer meant getting it from England or Germany or Belgium and. Mm -hmm. There wasn't as much of uh, respect, I think, for the American beer scene, save for maybe like Stone or Sierra Nevada. And so when we went to New Belgium, it was still pretty small at that mm -hmm. time. It hadn't blown up. And you know, when we continued on to California, we went to like Stone Brewery, which was like a tiny little place in Escondido at the time. And now, you know, well, they've now since kind of rescinded, but like they were huge at one point mm -hmm. as well. And so, you know, I think that was the other thing was when Sarah wanted to get into it, there like wasn't. Like if in 2012, you're like, I want to get into craft beer, people were like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like that's a yeah. whole industry. I think in 2005, people were still like, what? Yeah. Like, it just wasn't a thing as much. At that I, point. I think I, I think people realize that it really wasn't that long ago that right. craft beer was just not a thing. Right. Right. It was just not a thing. It was like, maybe like Sam Adams was cool. Exactly. You know? Yeah. yeah you <laughs> had like, like Sierra Nevada, which didn't have huge distribution. So when you could get it on the East coast, it was cool. I mean, Dogfish Head. Um, yeah. There are a handful kind of doing it right and doing it big enough at the time but especially yeah i think it was slower to get to the east coast it really started kind of out west um the hops are grown in pacific northwest and then you know some of the really big breweries at that time were all out there so yeah you know okay. we always say how at penn state we drank a lot of beer just not a lot of good beer and so you know i think when it was time to step <laughs> up from like yingling that we would get Ying, yingling was like oh, the fancy beer well we yeah yingling, that was our, yingling yeah. is the official like beer of pennsylvania oh, yeah. right, right exactly so, yeah. <laughs> and so you know we we drank that a lot too much, you know, and then toward the end of college, we started getting into it more and, mm. you know, and then I think, yeah, like you said, when we drove cross country, that was when it became 
almost like a lifestyle of like, okay, we want to seek out new beers and new breweries. And that was where it started growing. Yeah, like everywhere we went, it, it was kind of, we're not foodies. So it was just like, where's a brewery? Where can we go? And then I started traveling a lot. Um, then we eventually moved to um, New York City and I started traveling a lot for work internationally. And while it was fun, I mean, it's really lonely <laughs> to be like gone for a week at a time, different time zones, different countries where you don't necessarily speak the language. Um, so I would always just go to a pub or a brewery um, or a bar and find like, you know, people can speak the language of beer. So that's where I always, I always felt comfortable. And then that's where I absolutely fell in love with pub ales, um, all the London breweries. And I will, I, I try to make it a U.S. thing. I try, like, I love, I actually won um, an award, a homebrewing award for my pub ale. Um, I'm going to try and make it work, but. Yeah, you know, English beers are the hard. that Sarah yeah. will die yeah. on no matter so. what. And so I, I, she's won me over. Um, <laughs> what's, what's funny, though, is while Sarah was traveling for work, um, I was actually the one who started brewing first. So I got like one of those one gallon kits and it was just I had no intention of starting a brewery. It was really just to keep myself occupied. I just was like, I'd like to make my own beer. I had some friends at work that made their own beer. I thought it was kind of cool. It's kind of impossible in a New York City apartment, um, even when you <laughs> do have heat and hot water yeah. and gas, which we'll get into later. But, um, you know, so I made my little one gallon kits and like, sometimes they came out great. And I was like, this is awesome. And sometimes they came out terribly. And I'm like, why the hell did that not come out right? And I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I was like, okay, you know, I, I like the novelty of making my own beer periodically, but later on, and this goes back about kind of like how the name hot plate came to be, but you know, later on when Sarah got into it and started brewing with me, it was very clear very early on that she really understood how to design recipes and how to make beers that were really interesting. And coming for me from the homebrew community, we would always roll our eyes and people would like be like, oh, I'm going to start a brewery. And, you know, I actually worked <laughs> on the side at a homebrew shop in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I could tell you how many people come through, never brewed a beer before in their life and declare that they're going to like make one five gallon recipe and then start a brewery. And I mean, it's a thing. People really were doing it. And I was just like, the world does not need one more brewery. Um, but yeah, Sarah came home one day and declared, uh, <laughs> we should we, do this. Yeah, so. we were, um, I was part of, I think the only book club I've ever joined. Um, but it was really just more just drinking, I believe, cause we would meet at, um, this beer hall called DSK in, in Brooklyn. And it was like our first meeting with the group and it was just, you know, we're chatting and everybody's going around the table. Like if you could do anything right now, what would you do? And I'm like, open a brewery. And then I marched through the door after many many liters of beer and like we're opening a brewery and he's like okay <laughs> so so i started taking classes um and got really into it and it was very intimidating at first but i mean so it, it is interesting because it is this situation where yeah that's the cool thing to do oh okay we're gonna do a brewery yeah, i'm gonna yeah. do a micro brew and and start that business um because you know how is that not the coolest thing in the mm. world, right? <laughs> you guys are doing it for real. Um, but how does that begin? Like how, I think people have a decent sense, but there may be people who have no idea how beer is made. So, so what does that look like? Um, you know, how do you make that first brew? And I, you said you were testing it, but like what, what literally are the ingredients, uh, Mike, that you got to start with and kind of go from there? Yeah. So what's funny is when you start with one of these like pre-made kits, they kind of try to make it fail safe so that like you can't mess <laughs> it up too badly. And so what happens is, and, and you know, we learned a lot more over the, we've been brewing, I think almost nine years for me mm -hmm. or eight years for me. 
Um, and so when you start with one of these kits, basically they give you this little bag of grains and you're like, okay, great. Like I'm, I'm making beer. And you realize like that is just to like give it some color and give it a little bit of flavor, but all of the alcohol is actually coming from what's called extract. And mm. a lot of people, when they start brewing at home, they brew with malt extract because that's what gives it all the sugars. So you like bring the water up to a certain temperature and then just add. It just the, looks like a big blop of syrup. Yeah. Like, so that you know, like a like, liter of syrup. It's something. either in this sort of like liquidy form or sometimes powder, depending yeah. on which kind of extract you get. So what you end up doing is you steep these grains like a tea, basically, and then you bring that up to a boil. And then once it hits a boil, then you add all this extract. And that's just all of the sugars that they got from. Um, so when they make these extracts, they, they mash at huge quantities and then distill that down and give it to home brewers so that you can make beer yourself. And so, you know, you boil the, you boil these sugars like you normally would. You add hops, um, depending on what kind of recipe you're making, like you normally would. And you put in your packet of yeast um, at the right temperatures and they give you kind of the step-by-step -step mm. process. So if you follow it and you do pretty well with sticking to certain temperatures in two weeks, you'll have a beer and you get to be really proud of yourself. <laughs> but like I said, one of the downsides is you don't necessarily know, well, why is it at this temperature? What temperature ranges are acceptable? What if I pitch these too hot? What if I pitch it too cold? What are, you know, why did this come out so badly? Why does it taste like paper? You know, like you have all these different questions of like why it didn't come out correctly. And then you realize there is a whole other version of brewing, which is called all grain. And that's where you actually take the, the malt itself and you actually like sit, have that sit in the water. And I'll have the expert here kind of tell you <laughs> more about that. Yeah. But, you know, I think that one of the things that we really wanted to do was get off of extract beers and start using all grain because that's where you have more flexibility with your recipe design. And also they don't all look the same color. Yeah. The other problem with extract is they're all like this. And it's a nice color, but it's like all that sort of coppery. And no matter what you make, it's like yeah. the same yeah. color. Yeah. And I like I started getting really sensitive to the how the malt tasted. So we, the extract would taste. So like even though we were getting different types of extracts, it was still like still tastes like the same beer to me. I can get a hint of whatever hop we added, but um, again, it was what we could do in a 600 square foot apartment. So that, you know, not as much equipment as you go to a brew bag or all grain, you have to get the equipment and then soon you're living amongst beer equipment. So, <laughs> and that, and that's when you were in New York city, that's yeah. what we're talking about here. Okay. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah. so again, okay. You started in college. Yeah. Uh, that's where you met. Mm -hmm. um, but let's backtrack a yeah. little bit. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, where are you from originally? So I was born in LA um, and then my mom wanted to see trees. So we moved to New Hampshire when I was eight. <laughs> there um, aren't any trees in LA. It, there are palm trees. There are palm trees. <laughs> um, and so I grew up on the sea coast uh, and then went to live there till I went to Penn State. Um, but my mom has since moved back to California and she wonders why I don't visit. And I say, because you brought me to New Hampshire and I liked it. So, <laughs> and there are no trees. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely not now. <laughs> and, um, and, and Mike, you're from, uh, Pennsylvania. Well, you're from New Jersey first. Uh... Yeah. So I was born in New Jersey and then my family moved to Pennsylvania in the early nineties. Um, I, my dad got a job out there that took us out there. And so like Sarah, I kind of split time between, you know, my, so I live in a very, I have a very Italian family, lived in a very Italian American community, then moving to central Pennsylvania was very sort of, you know, Pennsylvania Dutch. Sure. And so like Sarah, I think I've, <laughs> I've also kind of lived in two worlds as well, yeah. where, um, you know, when I go back home to my family, it's, it's one kind of culture. And then 
you know, living in Pennsylvania just taught me kind of a different way of living. Yeah. So we are kind of chameleons, I think, in that way. And I think when we met, we we understood what it was like to live a, among like kind of more waspy people, but having an ethnic difference. And so I think that's a way we bonded, mm. even though we obviously have different ethnicities ourselves, Sarah being Mexican, me being Italian. I think it was like we just understood what it felt like to both pass, but then sometimes have this ethnic difference. Like, for example, the first time Sarah ever came to a Thanksgiving at my family, oh my that was when she realized that we make a lasagna as one of the dishes at Thanksgiving. And like, <laughs> you do? Yeah, yeah. We oh, would have great. like a full in in the middle of the Thanksgiving dinner. You have a lasagna, and they like we only got a twenty minute nap in between. That was not enough. <laughs> that was not enough. But you know, there were like little perks like that, and like you know, Sarah's grandmother actually made these little. She would like take stuffing and put it in tortillas and like fry them up. They were Deep delicious. Fried, like, she didn't so understand unhealthy. Thanksgiving. But like she also didn't understand understand Thanksgiving. So I think those were kind of the experiences when we got to know each other. We realized we sort of knew what it was like to navigate this world where you felt like a fish out of water. Mm. And uh, I always loved being in Pennsylvania and seeing the Quakers on the side of the highway with their horses and buggies. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is really a culture shock mm -hmm. yes. because those people are real and they're actually doing that. Yeah, um, yeah it's not cosplay. The, yeah, like the, yeah, the <laughs> farmer's market, like, oh, no, these they literally like churned this butter by hand and it's delicious. Cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I do hope that you are enjoying the podcast. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this is a production of 180 Media. That's my full service communications and marketing agency. We do a full range of content development, graphic design, web development for WordPress or Wix or other web platforms, copywriting, video work. We'll do the big high-end corporate video work with full production, or we'll also do more simple and quick, consistent video content to help you stay in front of your audience on social media and elsewhere. We'll help you develop your short and long-term marketing plans, and I can actually even coach you to nail that next presentation. Check out 180media.com and see also some of my past work and the agency's past work on my blog, johncroll.info. And now back to the podcast. What is it about a pub, Sarah? Because you, you talked about how that was sort of like a, a, a almost like a, a safe haven for you mm -hmm. or something like that, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you were out and, and you were international you know mm. what, what were you doing uh during that time so my day it? job is i'm in consumer insights okay. um and so i was working for uh the international team at nickelodeon and so doing a lot of um whether it is you know product testing like I, one trip i literally my whole bag was just baby clothes because we had to go I think it was brazil paris and london and it was kind of a whirlwind tour and like i I refuse to check my bag ever. I do not check bags. So whatever I can pack, <laughs> like I, I need to have it in this bag. And so, but we had a ton of product and we had issues one time with stuff getting stuck at, at customs. So they're like, you need to take all this with you. And I was like, okay. And then I guess I have like two outfits for myself, which is fine. But I was like, I just really did not want to get stopped and have to explain why like a grown woman without a traveling without a child has a suitcase full of baby clothes. <laughs> but it was sort of like to test the products and stuff like that. Um, so it was a lot of um, and have you ever like, thought of how you would explain that. I, or, no, I, I'm not good. I like I get verbal vomit. You been I get like arrested. I would have probably been arrested because like I, it would it would have not been clear as to what I was doing uh, and that I did not abduct a child that I was trying to take with me somewhere. Uh, and so it was it was we you know i'd be out 
like a week at a time, you know, fly like an overnight Sunday, arrive usually in the office on a Monday morning after having slept on the plane, um, get right to work and then kind of continue on into the morning hours to work kind of New York hours because uh, we were a really small team. And so my only break was kind of like between leaving the, or whatever our international office was in my hotel room. I'm like, I need food, um, but I also need a beer more. So it was just kind of that calming. Um, I liked that you could just see people that it was okay. The culture, especially because I spent the most time in London, the culture is like, yeah, you can have a pint with lunch. It's fine. You're not, you know, slow ABV. There's no looking down upon. And, you know, in the U S it's like, Ooh, I don't know. Let's see if the bosses gets a drink at lunch. I'll get a drink at lunch. It's just like, it's fine. You know, and people in that culture of just like, you go to have a couple of drinks and then you go home and you can still put your kid to bed. You can still function and make dinner. Um, not to say that people don't go crazy. We all go a little crazy every once in a while, but it was just that like, it was part of the culture and it was okay. Yeah. That would, that would be nice yeah. to be able to just go out around and just uh, around here yeah. <laughs> and not to worry about, well, is the boss ordering a drink? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so looking at that uh, now, how did you end up in, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts? So that was kind of an interesting journey for us. We knew, you know, once, once we made the decision that it was time to start the brewery, and in a lot of ways, I think COVID accelerated that for us. There was this period of time where we were driving around to different places and scoping out different areas. Um, originally, we thought we might end up in upstate New York. Um, our friends and, and us would go to the Catskills a lot to hang out. And we'd always kind of rent a house and spend time up there. And so we were more familiar with that area. But when we were kind of looking at the Catskills, one of the biggest knocks against it, as beautiful as it is, as much fun as we had, those towns are really disparate and there's just not the kind of population density or the culture that we would be leaving behind if we left Brooklyn. And so we were like, okay, I don't know that we could actually live here full time. Not to mention there's an awesome brewery called Westkill. And then Woodstock Brewery has like one of the best locations because it's right next to Phoenicia Diner. And so we like looked at the lay of the land and we're like, I don't know, like this is this is kind of like already taken and, and it just didn't feel promising. And so I had been coming to the Berkshires for a couple of years because one of my writing mentors teaches at Williams. And so I was doing some writing workshops um, at a, at a barn in Hancock that had been converted to like uh, an Airbnb type place. And so we would do writing workshops every August. And so when I was coming up through here, I'm like, well, the Berkshires have the same kind of geography, it has the same kind of you know look and feel that we really like about upstate New York, but wow, there's like Williams right there, and there are all these museums and concerts, uh, you know, music going on. And we looked at kind of the fact that we could see ourselves in a place where there were still things to do, and especially because like we're a childless couple, so moving to a new place that wasn't going to be a city was kind of intimidating because we didn't have that sort of built-in networking of like, mm. oh, well, our kids go to school together, play sports together. So right, it was like right. we needed to go to a place where there were things to do. And so we started really looking at um, the Berkshires more seriously. And then we just did kind of like a quantitative analysis of like, okay, of all the breweries it, like per capita in the area, what counties are underserved? And Berkshire County came up as one of them because um, I think this is probably dated now a couple of years, but when we were looking, it was like, there were about 220 breweries in all of Massachusetts at the time, maybe two or mm -hmm. three years ago. And only five of them is, as you probably know, are in Berkshire County. So this was from just a quantitative analysis, like an underserved market. And so our first call is actually to one Berkshire. And we, this was in, I think, November of 2020. 
And we said to them like, hey, we're thinking about coming. It seems like this was an area that could use some more breweries. And when you look at the demographics, they fit squarely into like, what does that craft brewery uh, you know, consumer look like? And it was like all that data checked out mm. and they were like really enthusiastic about it. So we started poking around and, you know, we saw some properties in other towns. I won't, you know, name names, but we were looking at places. We started getting really serious about it. And we got um, connected to our attorneys and our accountant who are both based, based in Pittsfield. And we hadn't really looked at anywhere in Pittsfield yet. And they were like, why, why aren't you looking here? And we're like, <laughs> we don't, really have a good reason. Like we, we just were like, oh, okay, well, we're poking around. Like we were familiar with Bright Ideas because we had gone to Bright Ideas one time when we were in Vermont, we dipped down to North Adams. And so we were familiar with that. And we had spent more time in the Great Barrington area. So we knew of Big Elm, but we sure. just hadn't spent a lot of time in Central Berkshires. And it was kind of like when we came to Pittsville, we like, how did we not like end up here? Because we really fell in love with North Street. And I know, you know, I've learned enough about the history and I've learned about, you know, the, the challenges with GE leaving and, you know, and then I don't want to make light of it. I understand that it's been sure. challenging, but we just see so much potential and upside with, with downtown Pittsfield. And we're like, this is like what we wanted. It's this, this classic like mainstream America and putting a brewery on the corner there just seemed really awesome. And it also seemed like a place where we would want to live ourselves. So on a day when we're closed, we're not gonna have a ton of free time, but it's like, getting to a, a hiking trail, getting to a lake, getting out in nature is like five minutes, not an hour and a half drive, you know, mm. the way it used to be for us. So as we we're thinking about making this life change, it was like both personally and, you know, professionally, we felt like this was an opportunity to kind of fill in a hole in the market. And so what's been nice is we've almost lived in the Berkshires for almost a year now. Yeah. And everyone we meet has just been super enthusiastic and really excited about all of this. And so it really just felt like, um, you know, we're not open yet. So obviously it remains to be seen, but just the way that people are responding to it, that it really was the right choice and, and the place that um, needed something like this. And we had the chance also to talk to Christine Bump from uh, sure. Big Elm, who oh, used yeah. to have uh, the brew works down where Tito's is now. That's and right. she was really enthusiastic about Pittsfield as well. And she was, you know, saying that they really loved being here and, you know, they just didn't want to do the restaurant anymore, but when they were here, they were successful and it was popular. And so it was nice to like hear an endorsement from someone in the industry that like, yes, this will work. This concept will work. Um, just because sometimes you do meet some pessimistic people about, you know, something going downtown. And so there's been, I would say on balance, way more optimism than there has been pessimism, though we've been met with a little bit of both. And sure. I, and I think also yeah. part of the decision was when we were looking, we knew that we could not just like buy a plot of land and build our dream brewery that, was not in the budget whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so that was also, you know, understanding like, okay, well, we need a building. Well, what kind of building do we need? What do we have? You know, it's because we looked at some places like, oh, this is great. Oh, but there's no, um, there's no sprinkler system. So you have to add in a whole sprinkler. It's like, well, that's a huge amount of money. Like yeah. we could just for a sprinkler system. So we had to kind of look at what we could afford, you know, just like when you're shopping for a home. Of course. But also yeah. I had to remember that like, we will be leaving our day jobs. And so, you know, you're like, oh, I'm stuck in an office. Oh, I hate, you know, it's like, oh, my fluorescent lights are so, they bother me so much. So it's like, we have to remember we're going to be there like a lot of the time, most of the day, you know, we will be living there. So we have to find a place that we want to go to that's light enough, airy enough, you know, not just, not just our brewery, but it's going to be our home because we also want to make it feel like home for other people. So that was also a tough decision uh, because we had to get rid of some of the things that like, 
I would have loved to have a huge outdoor space. But again, that outdoor space would usually come with a ton of land and kind of a rickety building that we would have to update. So, yeah. I mean, the good thing is, I mean, if you're in, in downtown, it's not too far uh, of a walk to get to the sort of light and airy, right. uh, a little as opposed yeah. to some other downtowns. Yeah, right. um, you know, uh, there is a greenery available mm -hmm. um, a short walk away uh, in a lot of the, the area. Um, so Mike, what, what is your, you have a day job? I do. That, yeah, okay. yeah. So now, uh, <laughs> my, my career has taken weird turns, uh, probably <laughs> the entire time, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. So right now I'm um, the director of municipal sales for a sustainability company that is trying to, um, increase like waste, uh, diversion and recycling and stuff like that. And previous to that, I worked for a startup that was basically a loyalty program for recycling and, and we got acquired and I, I stayed on and stayed on with this company. Uh, previous to that, I worked primarily in marketing. Um, I started in cable television. We actually had the same first yeah. job. And then I moved over to retail marketing um, for the first half of my career and then switched into sustainability. So also not from the beer industry. You know, my, my background has, my degrees are in English. Uh, I was a creative writer, still am a creative writer. Um, and I do a lot of the marketing and branding for, for us. Um, so in a lot of ways, what's exciting for me is that we're like a very gender inverted team. You know, when you see husband and wife breweries, it's like oftentimes, not all the time, uh, you know, oftentimes you'll see like the guys like the brewer and like the woman's like running the business and like yeah. we're completely flipped. Mm. You know, Sarah is the brewer and she designs the recipes and she knows how to work the equipment. I am not mechanically inclined. I should not be working <laughs> the machinery. Um, I do pretty pictures and make things sound nice. Yeah. But like, you know, and so we have a good balance there. Um, so you know for me it's like my, my background's helped i think in rounding out what we're doing as a business but um like i said early on when i was doing those one gallon kits it was clear that i am a much better consumer and appreciator of craft beer culture uh, i like writing about it I like telling our story um but i think you know the, the designing the recipe and doing the actual work is, is very much more aligned with sales I noticed you because of Instagram posts and I was seeing the content you were putting out there. Um, so to your credit, both of you, um, I think, you know, Sarah is usually in more of the videos <laughs> um, as far as that goes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Mike, I assume you're, you're adding that content with your, with your creativity and, yeah. and you know, take me into that process because I think maybe people look at, Instagram or Facebook or uh, TikTok, what have you. And, you know, th they don't necessarily see it as a necessity. Uh, but for you as a business, um, this is like, you know, you got to post. Yeah. Um, and my, that's my assumption. And so that's a big part of what you're doing right now because you're developing that story uh, right now before this officially opens. Mm -hmm. This is really a critical time for you. It, it really is. And, you know, I think one of the things that is fun when I look back on all of this. So we'll get into why the name Hot Plate later, but this does touch into the origin story a little bit because when we started getting serious about starting the brewery and we were brewing on a hot plate, um, I had this thought and it wasn't like the day one, you know, we, we started brewing on a hot plate and we started like continuing this, chasing this dream of starting a brewery. And we went to a festival called uh, Beer Without Beards that was hosted by a craft beer magazine called Hop Culture. And the first one I think was in summer of 2018. Mm -hmm. And that was 
you know, the first time we saw how many women were actually in this industry, which was really exciting. And that was when we were like, oh, wow, there really could be a home. You know, Sarah's like, there really could be a home for me. And so I had the thought then, let's start documenting this. Let's actually start like telling the story. And so I remember like our first ever post, which was around that same time in August of 2018, it said something along the lines of like, we're going for it. We have no idea what this is even about. You know, I think to your earlier question, like, what is it to start a brewery? We had no idea in 2018. <laughs> we were like, I knew that Sarah was onto something. She had written some really cool recipes. She was starting to really understand like what she liked and didn't like as a brewer. She's starting to really kind of find her voice, so to speak, um, as a brewer. And so I was like, well, let's start just capturing this story. Um, at that point, I don't even think we had any idea of like what kind of shape it would take or anything, but mm-hmm. it just felt like we were we were doing something I think that felt unique because we were told by so many different people, like can't brew on a hot plate. You really need a stove that like has like heat and that like, you know, cause you want to get that direct flame to like really get a good boil going. And it just felt like this thing of like, well, you know, let's take this lemon and turn it into lemonade. And if nothing else, like for me at the time, um, the company I was working for that startup I mentioned was, we were starting to lose a lot of clients. The recycling market was falling apart and we had this apartment that had no heat and hot water. And so I was in a really bad headspace. And so for us, I think hot plate just was something to look forward to. And one of the things that we really love about craft beer, I think we both believe this really strongly is its ability to bring people together. And so what we used to do is we would make our beers on our little hot plate, we'd ferment them. And then we'd have all of our friends come over this is obviously pre-COVID, um, you know, we'd have all our friends come over for a tasting party. And like that activity of like, you brew, you wait for two weeks, you ferment, or you, you know, bottle conditioned it, we weren't kegging at the time. So it's really kind of a three week process start to finish. But on, on week three, we'd get to have all of our friends over. And for that period of time, we could take our minds off of really difficult living situation. And so I just started telling that story. And then you know, we, we would post regularly. It wasn't like now, you know, like I, I have a whole content plan and, you know, we're posting very regularly <laughs> and I want to make sure that, you know, we're following all the sort of best practices and, and expanding our reach and, you know, tracking engagement, doing all the things I used to do for my day job and hated it at the time. You know, both of us are not kind of personally on the stuff. We, we left these platforms years ago, but, you know, Hot Plate was kind of a journey for us. And then I'd say probably a year and a half ago, it started becoming like realer to us. So around the same time that we started looking at properties in the Berkshires, talking to people, um, we had a friend who probably, if it wasn't for him, I don't even know if we would have gone down this mm-hmm. road, but we made this one beer that was a jalapeno pale ale. And he was just like, this is the most incredible beer I've ever had. If you guys ever went commercial, like I would back you guys. And like, this was, I don't know, 2018, 2019. So it was kind of in the back of our head, but like we still weren't necessarily sold on any any near-term activity but like little moments like that kept happening sarah made this one beer for a women's homebrew showcase in 2019 that was the first time she ever made her uh chamomile blonde ale that is like kind of her signature recipe and we were still kind of like unknowns in the home brewing scene sarah especially like i was working at the store so people kind of knew who i was but people didn't really know who sarah was and so we're, we're pouring it at this event and sarah actually couldn't be there because she was away for work and people kept coming back to the table like what is this who made this oh my god and like that was the the actual moment where i was like okay this is something and then we switched gears and it was less about like posting intermittently and just kind of like half complaining about having no heat and hot water and and burning on a hot plate and to like 
okay, let's start really telling the story. Let's start documenting this journey. And then once we like really like moved up here, got ready mm -hmm. to move up here and, and uprooted and did all of this stuff, then by that point, I really understood like, we're just getting followers that like randomly are DMing us being like, oh my God, this is so cool. I love following along. And it started to just kind of like build from there. And then I was just like, okay, I, I really have to treat this like a job and I really have to do this. Um, and yeah, one of the things that we're trying to do now is before we're open, just give that sense of like, you know, you guys know us, you know, we, when you look at all the other breweries in the area, a lot of them are people who are from this area who opened the brewery. We don't have that built in social network of just like friends that we grew up with or friends mm -hmm. that we hung out with. So we had to really introduce ourselves to Pittsfield and introduce ourselves to kind of the craft beer world in general. So um, in that way, social media has been helpful. I always had like this, like, I just hated social media for so long. And then now it's like been the thing that has helped, you know, connect us with <laughs> it so many It sounds like it's people. kind of like that uh, icebreaker. It's kind yeah. of the, you know, that, uh, that, that little connector that gets you to the next level um, yeah. to some extent. As, as Mike was talking, I was thinking, uh, Sarah, about, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Cheers, um, mm. uh, but uh, I, I think there was this episode where Woody was making this drink and he was trying to make this perfect drink. I don't know. And he was, he was completely screwing it up, screwing it up. And then finally he made one and Norm and Cliff and, you know, so they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is the best <laughs> drink in the world. What, you know, what is it? And, and of course he didn't know what he actually put yeah, in exactly. it after all that. So <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, when you're going through this process, uh, like how, do you track this? Because it's like, oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of right. that. And like, you know, <laughs> you it's, know, it's, it's going to be a very methodical. Yeah, because I come from, um, so my, one of my grandmothers was an amazing baker and my other grandmother was an amazing cook. Uh, they, my grandmother could cook, could not bake. The baker could do a little cooking, but the, the cook could not bake to save her life. Um, and so I would always try and learn from her, but she, you know, she's, been cooking she was like one of 13 kids i believe um and she was kind of in charge of a lot of the meals for the family um so i would always try and learn from her but anybody who has a grandmother that has been you know cooking for the majority of their life it's like oh just a handful of that and i'm like well, i don't i don't even i don't know what that means um <laughs> like so how I big think, of a hand yeah right. so i was like, thinking i like, <laughs> like one time i was trying to watch her make tortillas and she was you know like a hand of this and i'm just like and my notes are it was like half a cup question mark uh so a lot of a lot of failures for me on the cooking front but now i i think i have it down you're actually uh, fantastic uh, but um so when it comes to brewing, there is, you have to start to understand the chemistry a little bit more of like, what does that mean? When I add this, like, does that change things? I'm not necessarily there yet of understanding all that. I don't, I don't think we'll ever be there because, you know, there are just people who specialize in like just yeast or just hops, you know? Um, I wish I could know everything about everything, but I know I can't. So the biggest thing that I learned from day one was just taking notes. Like you just have to take notes. Um, and so, I, what I do, it's funny because we, he's a creative person in life. I, you know, live and breathe in Excel. Um, I like bullet point lists, all of that. But when it comes to brewing, we are the exact opposite. He is the, um, what they call the German purity laws, Rein, Rein which is kind Wait, of, what? yeah. yeah. These, and these are, what, that, what is this? Yeah. We yeah. have to pause just to talk about this for a second because there, there's something called the Rein and it literally is a German law 
that all beer must be made with only four ingredients, water, you know, malt, hops, and yeast. And what's funny is we actually were at the craft beer conference a couple weeks ago, and there was a panel where um, they were talking about non-alcoholic beer. And this German brewer or German scientist was up there and someone was asking like, you know, are there preservatives you can add to non-alcoholic beer to make it more shelf stable and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, well, if I weren't a German, I could recommend stuff, but because of the Rhein Heinzgebot, you know, we can only stick to these ingredients. I was like, wait, that's still, like, this was something yeah. that was created in like the early Renaissance. So I think it was uh, like the 16th <laughs> century that they codified this law. And, you know, funnily enough, Sam Calgioni, the founder of Dogfish Head, said that this was actually the first ever um, censorship, you know, because he really felt like this was censoring to say, you know, old beer can only be these four ingredients. Uh, whereas, I mean, the, what, what, is the, what is the law? I mean, is it it's like, like to get, was it actually a law at to, one point? Yeah, or? To, yeah, I think be a part of like the <laughs> Brewer's Guild yeah. or something, you had to actually adhere to this. So there was like a legal ramification about this that I <laughs> believe still exists to this day. You know, on the flip side, Belgians are like, hey, if it tastes good, it is good. That's like yep. their credo. Yeah. And so Sarah definitely comes more from that. Yeah, so I like, thing. so I like adding things, you know, when we were starting to work on recipes together and then afterwards, you're just kind of like, you just, you do the recipes. Um, but, you know, it was like, hey, can, what, what do we add about this? Like the chamomile blonde. I love chamomile. I love, I would drink chamomile tea with my grandmother. So I'm like, well, I like this. There was um, a milk and honey recipe that Greenpoint Brewery used to do. I don't think they do it anymore. And I was like, I love the way this tastes. Okay, what's in that? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we added some chamomile? He's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, let's just try it. You know, we're on such small batches now. It's like, what's the worst? It, doesn't taste good or you know we'll just how small is the batch so right now we started with what one gallon now well, we're when i started okay. with i yeah, started with one, one gallon and yeah then we were doing two and a half for a long time when we were still brewing on a hot plate we now do five gallon recipes yeah so our our system that we got it will be seven barrels so there are 31 gallons in a barrel so uh, much more <laughs> a lot <laughs> more but, yeah. but when you're dealing with one gallon at a time exactly. you can kind of play with that yeah but then you know once you get to 31 gallons. Exactly. Well, you got to kind of know what you're doing. You don't want to, you know, exactly. waste anything. Yeah. So like um, I, I try and add stuff in that I think is interesting or if I'll, you know, if I, there's a beer I really like and I'm like, okay, what is, what is that grain bill? What are the ingredients? What, what do I feel is missing from it? What would I add to it? And does that come from an adjunct? So an adjunct is anything that's not fermentable. So like adding chamomile or jalapeno in our pale ale. Um, does that come from that? Does it come from using a different hop? Does it come from adding a grain? Like where can it come from versus just like dumping something in and being like, I want it to taste like grapefruit. So <laughs> I want to add grapefruit. It's like, well, you can get grapefruit from yeast. You can get grapefruit from the hop. So just starting to play around with that and understand that a little more is fun. One of our missions is to really expand the focus of what craft beer is and, and who it can be for. Um, one of the things that was excited when we were talking about kind of the early days of craft beer was it felt almost like punk rock of like just people just making these new beers and these new labels were popping up everywhere and you know i was definitely big on that sort of like initial ibu wars days where all these people were having these west coast ipas with like tons and tons of hops and i was like i didn't realize how much that blows out your palate but at the time it was just so cool because it was so different from like a bud light you know and so it felt really <laughs> interesting and over time, one of our only disappointments with seeing how everything's sort of like been so codified and static for the last couple of years of like, mm. you know, it's New England IPAs and it's like beer bro, you know, beer bros is a whole thing. And like, there's this whole like beer bros. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is, what are, I guess, are, what are beer bros? <laughs> 
Do you want to talk about beer? Wheels? I mean, it's your stereotypical, um, you know, men with beards. Um, <laughs> but no, that <laughs> very, that very much. Um, it a lot of the machismo. You know, they go in, they're thrown down. They want the high ABV. Um, kind of doesn't matter what they're they're getting. Um, or they're, you know, following the latest. Oh, they had to go wait in line for some brewery here. You know, very trendy. You know, and it's interesting. I always find I always find that whole part of the culture interesting because, I mean, in the end of it, you're sitting around talking about a recipe. Like you're you're talking about some, like the ingredients of a recipe. Like you would never, you know, people make fun of like people get together for cooking clubs and do that. It's like you're doing the same thing. You're just you're not doing the cooking. You're just doing the partaking of it's the end product fermented soup yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so and it you know and it's very much like um yeah just it's i think what it is is that so is the beer bro uh uh a traditionalist kind of or like uh or you know into the micro brews but they but but there's a certain what i mean are they closer to the german model or like, i would what, say what's the they they follow so these days you know new england ipas still kind of dominate the market and i i think what We've talked a lot about this. We, we think a lot about this because it's not that we don't want to seat at the table for them, but there's been this thing that's happened over the last several years, but like craft beer has become for some people like an identity, you know, and it's yeah. become like a whole lifestyle and they are people who are chasing trends. It reminds me like, so I was really pretentious when I was younger about like indie rock bands, you know, pre, yeah. pre Spotify. And it right. has that same kind of thing of like, and you oh, really identify with it so much that right. you, you know, and then you kind of get defensive in exactly. a way or that sort of thing. So that's so interesting because, it, you know, in craft brewery, you would think, okay, there's a lot of freedom here. Right. You know, we're anti-establishment. We're right. not Budweiser exactly. or any of these big, massive companies that are just making this beer that's boring. We're doing something crazy and creative and different. And then you get into that and then there's these little pockets yeah. of people who are into it but then it, that is a lot, tells you a lot about psychology right? yeah like, exactly. and, and human nature right. it's like you know the movie high fidelity that you know came up in the early 2000s and you know so it's all these guys that work at a record store yeah and i remember you know the one <laughs> scene where someone comes in and says like i want to buy like i just called to say i love you and they like just torch this guy for like you know coming <laughs> ask for this cheesy song and i feel like that's in some ways what's happened or that's at least our perception and our experience of what's happened in a lot of ways and what happens is like yes everyone who loves it loves it because they they you know love beer they love you know you have people who can tell you what hops were used you know consumers that like you know really know the ingredients they really follow this stuff well and i think that passion's great but that sort of exclusive nature of it or that like looking down your nose is something that we really want to try to combat somewhat because that's what makes people like you know, women or people from marginalized communities feel like there's not also a seat at the table for them because they're like, well, you know, and that was, I think in a lot of ways, when you first wanted to break into the industry, you're like, well, it's all just dudes there. Yeah. So like, yeah. Well, the other thing is, I mean, that's why people are intimidated by wine, right? Because mm -hmm. you have these whole wine connoisseurs right. that right. like, you know, if you, if, if you like it, drink the wine, right. like, exactly. you know, I don't yeah. care if it's a $12 bottle of wine right. or whatever, uh, made in California instead of somewhere yeah. else, you know, or, or what have you like, yeah. It, and the best advice I ever got about beer, because I, I never considered myself a beer kind of store, but I drank beer. I drank wine. I, you know, is if you like it, then it's good. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's yeah. always been sort of my staple. And I, 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 I wish more people would just kind of 
go with that because yeah. I think that would maybe lead to more creativity, you know, as opposed to the sort of, oh, well, we have to, you know, please these, yeah, right. the, the nerds or something. Right. I don't right. know. And that's like, that's why we want to have kind of a whole spectrum of, of product like because people we often get the question like oh what what are you gonna what's your gonna be your thing and i'm like beer that's gonna be our thing <laughs> you know so we want to have we just want to make really good um affordable classics like a cream ale um just something that's tangible then kind of you know the middle group of beers will be whatever is popular because we obviously want to serve people you know, we what, do want what, to make money. At yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, so we're not, yeah. It's, not, it's not a charity. <laughs> so we do need to pay the bills. Yeah, um, and you know, and then but making our own style within that. Sure. Um, and then kind of you know the third group of beers is more of the seasonal or experimental stuff um, that I like to play in that space. But we want to have something for everyone, and we understand not everyone can have beer, not everybody likes beer. So we are playing around with non-alcoholic. We're going to have um, not our own cider, but we will have cider and wine so that we can kind of make it a little more exclusive and obviously non-alcoholic like regular beverages, <laughs> so. Okay, so you're making beer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I presume people will be able to go to a location and maybe get beer, mm -hmm. but then there's a whole other side, maybe distribution, you know, uh, working with local businesses, maybe expanding out. You know, what what is the, the thought process in, in how this business is going to operate? Uh, we kind of had have had to make some decisions about how we wanted to start out based on the laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Interesting. Uh, you can have a brew pub license or a farmer's license. If you have a farmer's license, you can only serve your beer at your location. You cannot serve other spirits, wine, whatever. Um, and but you can self-distribute. If you have a brew pub license, you can you serve your own stuff, but you can also serve other people's other people's beer, other people's wine, other beverages, but you have to go through the third, the three tier distribution system, which um, is built to not be friendly to the three crackers. tier distribution yes. system. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about <laughs> the three tier distribution system in Massachusetts. I, I think I kind of get a sense of where you're where this is going, but um, but break it down. Uh, I, I'm yeah. sure a lot of people have no idea what this is. Yes. So the three tiered system, I think, is actually a federal yeah. thing, not, okay. not, not okay. just Massachusetts. But so the Massachusetts distinction is that like they have their own rules of what a farmer's brewer's license is versus a pub brewery. I see. And so the three tiered system was actually designed to try to combat monopolies. And so what they wanted to do originally is like the producers, i.e. like the breweries, you know, make the beer, they sell it to a wholesaler and then the wholesaler is responsible to sell it to the retailers, whether that's a bottle shop or package store as they're called around here or, you know, a restaurant Grocery bar. store, yeah. yeah. So wherever it's sold, there's that intermediary. So, that so you can't, in, in that way, you can't take your product and then sell directly to stores right. or right. other restaurants or pubs yep. there there has to be a, a third party mm -hmm. yeah involved and, yes and, that, and that's when you have the pub yeah and license. they take a large chunk and the contracts are yeah. extremely challenging to get out of there are a lot of um local brewers guilds that are trying to get the laws changed down in dc and lobby down there um because it is it hurts small businesses around around everywhere um so with the farmer's license yeah like um you can go like I could take a keg if you know um, 
I don't know, Thistle Mirth wanted a keg of our beer. I'd be like, here you go. It's this much money. Give it to me. That, but we can't do that with a pub brewer's license. And um, the reason why we decided what we decided was like, and like Sarah was saying, like as the brewery started taking shape and we're like, okay, here's the location that we're, we're eyeing. Here's kind of how that would all work. One of the things we, we really got serious about was the fact that, um, you know, cause we're going to be in downtown Pittsville on the corner of North and school street. And we felt that this is a place where professionals, you know, it's, it's near all the attorney's offices and banks and city hall. And so people coming after work might want to come with their friends, but you know, if we had a farmer's license and couldn't say have wine or cider, then you might lose some business there because maybe someone in the group has a gluten intolerance or they just prefer wine or, or cider instead of beer. And so we didn't want to lose um, that kind of business um, because we felt that right now there just still is a shortage of the number of places to go out in downtown. And so we felt like sure. it was really important to have something for everyone. And so we, we wrestled with it for a while, but then we ultimately decided that foregoing distribution in the short term will make us focus on taproom sales, A, um, allow us more flexibility in what we can offer in the taproom. And then once we can see which beers do sell, then we can place a bet on which we might want to distribute down the road because we have, you know, at least a couple of quarters worth of sales data or probably more. I don't know that we necessarily have a date in mind of when we'd like to switch into a distribution model, but we do know that we want to, you know, especially Sarah coming from a research background, um, not only do we like data, but as Sarah was saying, she kind of alluded to this fact, she worked in the consumer product space for a long time. So even though it wasn't beer, it was like Nickelodeon versus Disney to get their products on the shelves in Target. And just understanding the shelf space wars that- Yeah, that, shelf wars are just out of control. And so it's like <laughs> as a startup that has no brand equity you know, on day one, you don't want to be in that situation where you're fighting for shelf space. So maybe we're on the truck but we're like way at the bottom of the shelf, out of sight, you know, and, and it's just sitting there. Like they just take your product from point A to point B. They don't market it for you. They don't fight for shelf space. And it's and so also, it's something where you lose that quality control as soon as it leaves. You don't have, especially if you're with a big distribution company, your small account, they don't care. They don't care if they leave your keg out in the sun. They don't care if they roll it around and shake it up. It does not matter. Um, and so, that's, I am a control freak. So that that's part <laughs> yeah. of it, but I don't want someone to, um, if we are, you know, the bottom rung of this distribution ladder to have someone to have our beer be like, Oh, this is gross where it could have, could have been left down the sun. The lines could be infected at the bar or the, where, you know, at the restaurant, or, you know, it's why you should just never have a drink at a stadium because they just never clean the line. That's, you know, not a draft beer. Yeah, not a draft beer. Yeah. Bottles, cans, okay. But, you know, it's just you don't. And the, and the line you're talking about the when people the, are pouring yeah. from like a keg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, there's a line that comes Yeah, there's there. a line. Okay. And <laughs> there are a lot, a lot of ways that um once I started learning more about off what are called off flavors um, or infections in beer, I like now when I taste a beer coming out of an infected line, so it just hasn't been cleaned regularly, like, it just tastes like college to me. Cause I'm like, oh, that's every. <laughs> Every beer in college was infected. Because um, why would you clean a line if you're selling one dollar uh, pitchers of Ice House? Like you just wouldn't do that. Um, so that that's the other thing is that I, I will have to learn to give up some of that control. It's as like well. yeah, I'm sitting in the bar, I'm listening to some ska. Yeah, exactly. Know, some, some cake, yeah, exactly. And I can taste the beer. Oh, feels like college. Feels yeah, just like just college. Like yeah. <laughs> 
you do get a headache from some of the uh, some of the different things that yeah. can infect a line. So I blame all of my hangovers on infected lines, and none of none of it from you know, over the edge. <laughs> no. Uh, well, you know, you can you can blame whatever you yeah. want. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know more than most. <laughs> We're such nerds. And so like when we really got into the beer world, you realize how much like beer kind of tells the story of, of a culture, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Like it's very obvious in like Germany or Belgium or something like that, or even England where, mm. you know, the pub culture is a big part of it. But even in the United States, you know, one of the things that's really funny is when you look at pre-prohibition breweries and like the number of breweries per town or per capita and all the breweries that were in the country, there's this really interesting U-curve that existed where in like the 19th century, every town had a brewery because they had no refrigeration. And yeah. so there were all these like, you know, German immigrants and you know European immigrants who opened up breweries to serve their community. I mean, in Brooklyn, in the early days, it was, it, you know, the 19th century, it was like every corner just had a brewery. We're now kind of all the way full circle back to like it every is, town it is. having a Because what was the pure height of say, you know, where just it was only and only Budweiser, right, right. Miller, you right. know, and, and Coors, maybe I don't know. I'm just, you know, of course, there's Schlitz and mm -hmm. Genesee and all those uh, wonderful, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon, right, and, right. And, but um, now those Pabst is, is cool now, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but anyhow, but you know, there was probably uh, the height of that. Maybe that was like in the 80s and early 90s, where it just like totally hit and mm. then and then finally the microbrews started happening right. you know and we were talking before it's like at some point early on it was like oh sam adams was the cool hip right. new beer uh, and now it's been around for what you know like something like 30 years or something yeah. at yeah. least um well, you know, at this point what's interesting about that too and this is another sort of fun fact that i'm sure most listeners don't necessarily know and something we learned um several years ago in 1978 or 79 so under the carter administration he actually legalized homebrewing. So a weird thing happened after prohibition where like they rolled back a lot of the things from the Volstead Act and, and everything else. And I'm probably misquoting that, but um, they legalized like winemaking, they legalized, you know, craft or not craft, but they legalized breweries again, winemakers. So all alcohol production is, is back in an action, but there had been an outlaw of homebrewing that was still on the books until 1979. And so the Carter administration legalized this. And so there's actually a direct correlation between that legalization and the craft beer boom. And why this was an immature market for all those years is because there were a handful of families that maybe still had a, a beer recipe. And so at the time, mm -hmm. pre-1979, you would have people buying like malt and hops. And it's just like, oh, but you know, you're not making beer with that, <laughs> yeah. are you? you know? and, and so there was sort of like an underground, but it was very, very small. And I think just a few years ago like alabama or arkansas they finally alabama. were able to outlaw this or get rid of this law so like yeah, yeah. just a few years ago home brewing became legal in one of those states it was well, I, I, I can imagine that that kind of policy could then lead to because where does everybody start exactly experimenting right. they're right. experimenting in their homes but if they can't even do that legally right. <laughs> then then that takes away a lot of that experimentation yeah. that may lead to some inspiration and, and so on mm -hmm. and so forth um and, you know in the same way that you 
to, uh, mm. you know, started uh, your process. Um, so yeah, there you go. Good job, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> um, don't tell me he wasn't a great president. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, geez. Uh, so now Sarah, with, mm. with you, you have, um, uh, gotten some, um, attention uh, in the industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, from this um, inclusion diversity standpoint, mm-hmm. um, with your ethnic background, and that's really important in this industry. And I think that's that's why you know we talked about it earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, why uh, you're getting some attention for this? So tell me about that. Um, you know, tell me about um, this industry and diversity, um, and um, and why you know you're. You're pretty special in this industry. <laughs> um, I ha- I am fiercely independent. I have always, much to the chagrin of my family, I've um, always been extremely independent and stubborn and never really understood why I couldn't do something. You know, in, in elementary school, when I wanted to play basketball with the boys at recess, you know, I didn't understand why I, I couldn't. That just let me play. Uh, and so, you know, I've always looked at that and be like, well, I just, I just want to, which sometimes when we are trying to craft a story around a beer and I'm like, I just want to add this. He's like, but why? Just cause just do it. You know? And he's like, I need the story. I'm like, but this is how I feel today. Um, so for me, um, I've always just been like, well, I, I want to do this. So let me figure out how to do it. Um, but moving from LA to New Hampshire, when I was so young, I went from very, you know, my whole entire, both sides of my family was there. Um, to New Hampshire where we didn't know anyone. And um, we, you know, moved at the end of summer and I tan very easily. And so I, you know, we were the, a very dark complexion in a very white town. Yeah. I was going to say Exeter, New Hampshire, Yes, Hampton, New Hampshire, they they are not, not the pinnacle of diversity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So it was very challenging because I felt very, I didn't see myself a lot. And again, I was just like, well, okay, this is who I am. You get what you get. Uh, and so I didn't really understand that I lived in two different worlds until I went off to college. Um, and I went to draw, join a Latina sorority. Um, and, uh, I, I felt so out of place there, Mm. um, because I had kind of grown up uh, as a, you know, Mexican in New Hampshire. Um, and I didn't come from the same type of backgrounds that these people did. Um, my dad was part of that generation Same with Mike's dad that they did not speak their like native language. They spoke English, they had to assimilate and that's what it was. So they didn't teach their children. Um, so I could understand Spanish because my grandmother would always speak it to me, um, and my family, but I cannot speak it that well back even though I took it in high school, I should, you know, <laughs> um, but so it was, it was challenging because, you know, I, I went to go join the sorority thinking I'd find like, Oh, my Latina home. And I just felt so out of place. I didn't, mm. I didn't speak Spanish. Um, I didn't look like them. What was that like? It to was, be, to, you know, cause you, you're in your mind, you're like, Oh, you know, finally, yes. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe I'm surrounded with uh, yeah. people who are like me in this way. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, what was that like? I mean, it was kind of like going, just going back and visiting my dad's family. They live in the Valley uh-huh. and they are, um, you know, it's, it's funny. They call my sister Weta, which is like white girl. Um, and cause, and my nephew is, he was like a blonde looking surfer guy. So, you know, you, he hangs out with all my dad's cousins and it is, it's very different. Um, and so it, it kind of felt like going back to that, but I didn't have that familiar, 
familiarity that they were family. I was just like, this is very strange. And, you know, I was in the middle of Pennsylvania. I did not know that culture at all. Um, and so it was just, again, I was like, okay, well, I am who I am. Um, and it's only been, I'd say, I don't know how, like in the past few years that I have been able to say, um, I am, you know, a Latina. It's okay that I don't speak Spanish the way that other people can. I, do I wish I did? Yes. Have I, do I have Duolingo on my phone and I tap into it sometimes? Yes. But the language is, it doesn't make me who I am. I still have lived this experience and I've lived a very interesting experience because my mom's side is English and Polish. And so, you know, one, you, she speaks Polish and I'm like, that's, that's bananas town, you know, and it's just like having these different cultures come together um, has always been interesting to me. And then again, being, I always played sports all my life. I played tough. Like I, I would get down. I, my knees and elbows were always bruised in basketball because I would hit the floor. Um, and so it really took to like, just because that's not my experience doesn't mean it, this is not who I am. Um, and then looking at the craft beer industry, just not seeing myself anywhere. And, hmm. you know, besides being a beer tender or, you know, being the, you know, we saw this all the time in college, like the beer rep girls who come to the bars and like give you free drinks and t-shirts and stuff and are barely wearing anything. <laughs> and it's just like, no, that we can do other stuff too. Well, also is that, is that, was that like the woman's role in yes. the industry uh, at that point? And yeah, you know, I mean, and, and if you look at, if you go to Instagram, that still kind of looks like that's what it is. So yeah, there are beer influencers now that are very, um, there, there are some, uh, there's some women on there that like, they love beer, they care about beer. And then there are some women that it's truly like, you know, they, they're clearly like paid sponsors basically. And it's just showing off, you know, body parts and, and holding up a beer. And it almost has nothing to do with beer, except that there's a beer in their hand. And that's something that I think, you know, a lot of women in the industry are trying mm. to grapple with. Um, but what I was going to say is that I think one of the things that was interesting too, is we were very fortunate that when you went seeking a community in the craft beer world, there were a lot of women in New York city yeah. and it was probably as diverse as almost any other community. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, in, in pockets of, you know, LA and other cities, there's probably more diversity, but it gave us a false sense of how rare it was for Sarah to be not only just a Mexican American female brewer, but to be a brewery owner and adding that last level really does make a difference because, and again, this is something we actually learned because people were telling us how rare yeah. it was. Because again, you know, I was like, just like, this is who I am. This is what I do. When we started out, we weren't like, okay, let's lead with this whole like Latina empowerment message. It was like, hey, we're this couple that like started making beer together and, you know, we want to start this brewery. And, you know, one of the things, like, I, like Sarah was saying is um, she's just herself. And so we didn't think about it in terms of a label, but one of the things that I think was interesting, so Sarah went to the Pink Boots conference. Um, Pink Boots is an organization of women in fer fermented beverages. And I remember like she was just texting me as, as the conference was going on and she attended this one um, panel that was about black indigenous women of color in the industry. And they broke down just even on an ethnic level of like the percentage of brewery owners and it's like, you know, 80% white, and then you break it down and it was only 2.2% were of any kind of Latin descent. And then when you break it down further of like, okay, so only 2.2% of all brewery owners are, are Latin in the United States, 
and an even smaller of them are, are women, you start realizing like Sarah's kind of a unicorn. And so that it made sense when people were just Googling like, you know, Latina brewers, like Sarah's popping up because like, yeah. there are just so few people, you know, right. and, and we've been able to connect with like a lot of people. If you want to give some shout outs right now, but some other people that you connect with, there's like Lifting Lucy. Yeah, Lifting or- Lucy is a great organization to um, kind of get, again, all, all minorities, all underrepresented groups. Um, and I think part of, to me also the, inclusion part of it is uh, ability, you know, um, learning ability, hearing, sight, all of that. But then also because I'm coming into this, you know, as a second career. And so being inclusive, like, look, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you teach me? Um, and a lot of times I understand now that I will be a brewery owner, like, yeah, insurance is not just going to let you walk in and like, hey, volunteer for the day. I get, I get that. <laughs> But just being like, hey, can I just sit with you for an hour and um, talk to you about how you come up with a recipe um, and looking at the people who would give me the, that time of day versus not. Um, and so just being inclusive of you don't know this, but I can teach you this or you do know this. Um, let's let's take that up a notch um, and and really grow the community, because uh, there are a lot of people, especially women who come into this later in their lives, because we never saw ourselves there. We didn't know we could do it. Um, and then there are also a lot of women who are getting in from the ground up, especially since craft brewery is craft beer is so accessible now. And it's like, awesome. We're all going to kick ass, you know, when we can all kind of be at the top of the food chain someday. Now, how long have you been together, the two of you? So we, Last week or two weeks ago, we celebrated 20 years that we've been together since we yeah. started dating in college. And then next week, next week is our 15th wedding anniversary. So well, congratulations. We have been, thank you. We've been together for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had a small call. Co- so we actually cohabitated my senior year in college. So we've been living together for a ridiculously long yeah. amount of time. And so when you live together, that's, you know, that's a big deal you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. you have to adjust and be able to do that and and that's great because you want to make sure that you can live together you know right. before you really make that uh commitment um but then at what point did you start working together you know it, what was this project really the first time you were actually sort of working together formally uh in your relationship actually not. We, yeah. Yeah. we we actually what else did you do together we met we met in our college job we worked at the student bookstore and that's how we met Um, because we were both working there Um, and we knew each other for a year before we started dating so we got to know each other Um, and then then we went to california and then we ended up working at a place called the outdoor channel which i think is outdoor channel now i don't know yeah they dropped but but that was like we were doing i was doing research and he was doing marketing but it was our first professional jobs really but they were together and then it was funny so we moved out to california and like sarah mentioned earlier for those of you who are still listening um <laughs> we, uh, we we went out there without jobs and in my grand plan i had this degree in english and you know my my big plan was to write the great american novel and that was going to be my way of contributing to our relationship it didn't work <laughs> out that way um so i was just looking for jobs and i didn't really know what to do with an english degree and so i found uh, an ad in the paper this sounds so antiquated, but for a role advertising for a copywriter. And I was like, I don't even know what a copywriter is, but has a writer in the name, so I can probably do it. 
so I went down there and, you know, got interviewed and I didn't have a marketing background. I was like a straight up literary nerd, but I came from Pennsylvania and suddenly like I'd never hunted and fished in my life, but I didn't necessarily cop to that. I was like, oh yeah, I'm from central Pennsylvania. Like I know this culture. I know these people. And like, they were all in Southern California. So they were like, sure. I don't know. Like, they didn't, they didn't understand kind of their own clientele. Fake it till you make it. But yeah, again, I, I, you know what? It's kind of like assimilation. Yeah. You just, you kind of, you do pick up a lot of the, the stuff that you, you probably don't even realize mm -hmm. just by oh, being around yeah. it, you know, what my, uh, my favorite story about that is the first year we lived <laughs> Knowledge in Pennsylvania, by osmosis yeah. or something like that. Uh, the first year we lived in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, uh, the Monday after Thanksgiving is a holiday. I didn't know why it was a holiday. It's the first day of buck season. So <laughs> schools are shut down. So families can go out and hunt. It's like <laughs> a, a hunting holiday. And so I definitely dropped that in my interview of like, oh yeah, you know, we got Mondays off for buck season. Like I didn't have to say that I didn't go hunting. Like, you know, higher. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So so it was funny. So I got the job and then Sarah's like, oh, I wonder if they like have any research positions or like, I wonder if they're yeah, hired they for anything yeah. else. And I'm like, I, I don't even know if there's a research department. Turns out there was, and turns out Sarah got the job there. Yeah. And so, um, so that's how we got our first jobs. Yeah, and but then, I, I think for this, like when we, cause we do work really well together in, in kind of whatever we do, but the biggest challenge of us kind of being like, okay, we, yes, we're gonna be coworkers again, um, is because we have been together so long, we kind of have started, I mean, like when we're 80, we're gonna sound insane because we kind of have our own language now, mm -hmm. um, or we can like <laughs> read cues or stuff. So there's a lot with, of nonverbal, like, oh, can you get the thing? And I was like, oh yeah, got it. And like, yeah. it's just like, so we are trying to i mean when we start talking if we're just like driving or just sitting on the couch watching basketball we'll start talking like oh no okay we need to have a business meeting like let's let's make an agenda but our biggest challenge right now is on brew days we're trying to be like okay what's you know what's our sop so you know the procedure what's it going to be okay let's both look over the recipe okay when i need the thing i have to ask for the hydrometer i have to ask because i'm like <laughs> when we're when we have other people we can't just be like point and wave my finger over at like a whole table of instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we are having to kind of step back a little bit and learn a different way of communicating. Well, that said, we also haven't been coworkers for a long time. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is you develop work styles. And, you know, for example, like Sarah's really good at building in times to take breaks and take, take time to herself. She was always good at this. Um, you know, pre-COVID when we were not all working from home, you would like, get up from your desk and like intentionally go for a walk or do something. And I was always just sort of like slavishly devoted to like, no, I've got to be here, like burning the midnight oil or at least pretending to be, you know, even on days when I wasn't. Right. Cause and, that's the thing when you're, when you're actually doing that yeah. or you're not really effective, you're not as efficient as, as you know, it may seem right. that way. Cause you know, there's a lot of this and that, yeah. uh, that goes, and so <laughs> as opposed I, to the nice fresh walk. Exactly. You're refreshed. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. come back and then, yeah. you know, you're ready to roll again. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're, we're learning, I think those kinds of styles and I, I'm learning to be a better coworker in that way. Be more uh, like Sarah. To be more no. like, no, and it, it really kidding. is, it, well, as it really everyone is, should be. It really is useful. Um, I had my thesis advisor describe me once as a mouse that hasn't been fed enough cheese. And that's how I go through my life. But you burn yourself out that way, and I, I I burn myself out very often, and I'm trying to limit the sort of boom bust cycles and and learn that it's okay to take breaks. And I think you know what's hard is like this is our side hustle still, and so yeah. the temptation yes. is every waking second needs to be dedicated to hot plate. And Sarah's reminding me like, no, like give yourself a break. Like if if you were your own employee, you'd say like, hey, why don't you like cool mm -hmm. it for for a day? And so 
we're doing things now, like Sarah said, of like being a little bit more formal of like, okay, let's actually sit down and talk about these three things for the business. And then also conversely, like, okay, today we're just going for a hike, you know, and, and that's it. And we're yeah. just going for a hike. And so, yeah, though we did go on a hike Saturday and all we did was talk about hot plate for two and a half hours. So it's, it's, <laughs> it is hard. I mean, I, but, I'm it's lot, but it's a lot nicer when you're out on a hike. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> I'm terrible at it because that. like Sarah will be like, okay, let's not talk about work. And I'll be like, okay, absolutely. And then like one second yeah. later, I'll like start talking about yeah. work. And yeah. so like, we're, we're still learning to, to try to have that division and it's going to be tough. I think in the early days, because you know, it'll be our life. So we were, <laughs> we have always been such risk averse people and now we're taking like this huge risk. And so my way of dealing with that anxiety is just, you know, trying to work 24 hours a day to try to like mitigate as much risk as possible. But like, right. Cause I'm you know, while this may seem risky to you, I would sense that the way that you're doing it reduces the risk because I'm sure you're covering more bases than maybe some other people who aren't as uh, risk averse, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, it's risky, yeah. but like when you're risk averse, you're kind of like, wow, wait a minute. Like I'm, I'm thinking of every possible thing yes. that could yes. uh, go wrong. So Have I could imagine my diary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, yeah. um, and you know, then the other thing is, you know, beginning to th those processes that happen, you know, non-verbally or what have you, mm. but you know, between the two of you. Yeah. I mean, you know, from a, perspective of scaling and scaling for you right now may mean, well, you may bring an employee in right. at some point. So, you know, beginning to formalize uh, some of those things, um, you know, that's, that's where a good writer can, you know, help out with that and, and, uh, and make that all happen, but it's just fun, you know, yeah. I mean, it, and of course it's business, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a big deal, but uh, you know, if it's your side gig, you got to love it. And mm -hmm. clearly that comes through. And that was the, one of the first things that I saw on your Instagram post was just this big love for what you're doing. Um, you can see it just permeates mm. every video you do and, and everything. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I think you're doing content here in the Berkshires that I don't think many people are doing content like this. So it's certainly draws attention and you know both of you have great marketing minds and and um so it, it does it does shine through so where are you in the process now i mean you know not to go yeah. into like permitting and all that stuff but um but you know how close do you think you are to uh, possibly uh getting getting started out there so we are i'll start by saying we're we're hopeful to still be open like early to mid fall of uh this year um, we think we're a couple of weeks away from probably breaking ground. There are a couple of uh, hoops from a sort of financing and legal thing that we just have to finalize. Um, everything's kind of trending in the right direction. Um, we've gotten really good support from the city in, in a various uh, very variety of forms, really. Um, they have helped us with economic incentives to come. Um, they've connected. So Mayor Tyre has her whole red carpet team. And so they've connected us with people who will eventually help us with the permitting and stuff like that. So we've already met and started the conversation with certain people. So we're probably a couple of weeks away from some of that activity getting underway. Once we do have the signed lease, we can register with the TTB, which is the Trade Tobacco Bureau, which is an offshoot of like what I think the ATF was, yeah. but they're the people anyway, <laughs> but right, let's not go through another nerdy <laughs> thing. But like, so the what, the what, the what? Yeah, exactly. So they, uh, they're the ones who are responsible for your licensing because they're the ones you pay, you pay your taxes to. And so um, once you get that federal license, then you can get the state license and then you get your local permits. So mm -hmm. all of that activity will be underway in the co coming Hopefully, weeks. Yep. 
Um, our equipment is at least uh, in production right now. We actually got a note from our manufacturer who is a US based manufacturer that um, we were able to jump the queue a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there was some other brewery like had some kind of issue or something like that. So they were using the steel that they were allocating for that brewery to make our stuff. So it's actually underway, which is fairly yep. exciting. Um, and, and yeah, in the meantime, you know, one of the things we've been doing since we came here was trying to do these different pop-up events. So we're going to be out in the community at different things. Um, we're making beers for a friend's wedding. We're doing fundraisers. We're going to be at third Thursday in June. So we're, we're doing kind of different right. things to just keep giving samples away, getting our name out, you know, trying to stay on people's radar. Um, and yeah, so the, the hope is that, you know, maybe September, October, we're not sure, you know, I'm always optimistic. You know, I was saying summer, 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 and it's like summer is not going to happen. So, like, <laughs> so I don't know, Sarah's definitely more disciplined about not giving dates, but, yeah. Yeah. but it seems I mean, like, what, but it's, it's one of those, you know, with so many supply chain issues and, and all these things, it's like, no, we're not like going into like an old house and ripping up the walls, but there are unforeseen things that we will never know. So yeah we can say October now, Hope, hopefully that stands. If not, you know, we'll see. And that space, it seems to me, it's a very uh, open visually. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, I, in my mind, I can imagine this machinery and, yep. you know, beer being brewed and this kind of, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. So that, that's, that's pretty cool. And I, and I remember because you mentioned Christine Bump and, mm -hmm. um, and brew works, um, that was really cool because in that, um, restaurant you know mm -hmm. there was sort of a glass uh area that and then on the other side was the brewery mm -hmm. stuff and it really did look cool um so i can imagine that visual um you know people may not realize how important that is but mm -hmm. i think that's a really powerful thing uh if if it's a, a big visible thing on north street yeah i think that's yeah. going to be fun um you know, because one of the things, the way that it's laid out, and it was kind of intentional for that reason, like you're going to be able to, from the street, see Sarah Brewing, which I think is going to be fun on days where someone's just walking by and, you know, we see a friend, you know, go by and just give them a wave as we're like, you know, in the middle of raining out or something mm -hmm. like that. And um, one of the things that was really important for us and why we loved that building specifically was how bright and airy it is. Um, we really want to make sure it's a safe space. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned a lot about as we've tried to make it more inclusive is that um part of why of the multitude of reasons why some people feel unsafe in brewery spaces part of it is a lot of the sort of dark or industrial feel not just breweries but bars as well mm. that feels maybe unsafe for say a single woman who wants to ju just go grab a drink so we wanted it to be brighter we wanted it to be more open we wanted it to feel more gender neutral um and that started all the way back of when we were doing the logo development i hired an art director um, that i was working with and talked about our need to be more colorful, be more gender neutral, don't be, you know, just to stand out and to show that we're something different. And so that really came through. Um, we're working with the Allegroni design team for the actual brewery design and, and taproom design. And they did such a great job of bringing our brand alive in three dimensions. And like, we're going to have some kind of like cool paint on the walls and bring in our color palette and, you know, just create these kind of fun and novel spaces um, that I think are going to be obviously recognizably a brewery, but it will feel, I think, a little bit more energetic and mm -hmm. fun. And so, um, you know, the lighting was a big part of that. Having those big windows was a big part of that. And 
you know, just the fact that it's transparent is almost like metaphorically saying like, Hey, come yeah. in, you're a part of this, you yeah. know, be, be a part of this. So, yeah. Um, so we were really drawn to that building and uh, a fun fact is one time when we were visiting downtown Pittsfield, we were taking our dog for a walk on North street and no joke. She literally like stopped in front of this building and it wasn't even on our radar yet. We didn't know it was available. <laughs> and we just jokingly was like, Oh, is this hot yeah. plate? And like, and she's like 95% blind. So I think uh, she just stopped for a smell. She didn't, she didn't know. But we, we oh, love saying that she picked that up dog the has some yeah. good <laughs> intuition right there. Come on. The yeah. sixth sense. Exactly. She definitely, exactly. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. No, but it, I think it's exciting. And, you know, I think that every time I get stressed out about the undertaking, I just picture what it will be like when we see people walking by, not even necessarily coming in, but just the fact that it's going to feel very communal that like, you know, when we see people going to city hall, people going to the police station, whatever, and just walking by on their daily morning, or, you know, the attorneys walking around the corner to their office and just being able to like give someone a wave and just feel like that neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, that neighborhood spot, you know, it is. And, and people do like seeing the process. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. I think a lot of people love going into chocolate Springs and seeing Joshua Needleman in there making the chocolate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and so, uh, this is a similar, uh, case and, um, you know, remember, was it like Bush gardens or whatever? You get to see the, yes, you know, I, yeah. talking about the big industrial stuff, but people just like, like yeah, watching definitely. this, this stuff yeah. happen, uh, the process. Um, so there it is. So if they get a glimpse of that and then, yeah, I mean, on North street, you know, people walk by, you, see Stephen Valenti. He's sitting, he's standing mm -hmm. in, in front of his uh, desk there and it makes you want to come in and, yeah. and say hi, yeah. you know, right. and uh, then you see Mike at, uh, um, at uh, his, his graphic place uh, over there, you know, and, and, and so that's the great thing is mm -hmm. that North Street is very personal yeah. um, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. You, you know those owners and they're right behind that door um, and you can usually see them. So, um, so being a part of that and then adding to a space that's pretty much been vacant for a, a very long time mm. um, is is really awesome uh, for uh, downtown Pittsfield because I just don't think that the right uh, business came along um, up until now. So um, so I'm excited about that. So I hope it all goes through the way that, uh, that you're hoping that it will so uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for sure. So did we miss anything? Um, um, I think the one thing we did talk around a little bit, so I'll just do the big reveal of the name itself. So um, in 2013, we moved into a condo that was a new construction and we had had some delays of getting the certificate of occupancy for the whole building at the time, um, because it kept failing these inspections and then miraculously it passed. And so we were like, okay, great. You know, moved into this condo, um, about a month or two in our boiler, like stopped working one night and it was like super cold and this was heading into the holiday season mm -hmm. and we were like, okay, that's weird. So we got a plumber to come in they were able to kind of like fix it a little bit. And so we're like, okay, that was weird. And then it broke again, uh, February, March of the following year. And they were like, oh, I think you should replace it. Like the, the machine itself had been a recalled machine. And so, um, each unit in the building had had these tankless hot water things. So we, we replace it, bit the bullet, paid this cost. A couple years later, um, we had a knock on our door and it's, uh, a member uh, uh like an inspector from the new york city department of buildings and it's like a saturday morning so we're both home and i answered the door and they're like hey can i look at your boiler and i'm like sure you know they flashed the badge through the people so i'm like i i don't <laughs> no, I, I, look at your I, boiler. yeah and i was like oh okay and so 
I let them in and they, they look at the boiler and they're like, you know, is this where you get your heat and hot water? And we're like, yeah, this is, you know, what we've had since we moved in. Like we're the first owners of this unit. Um, it's been this way. Like we replaced the boiler itself, but this was kind of always our source of heat and hot water. And they're like, well, you know, this is legal. And we're like, that's news to us. Like this is what was given to us when we, you know, when we closed on the condo. And so a month later we got slapped with a, not just us, the building got slapped with a violation, a class one violation from the city. So for months we were like going to these hearings to be like, this is what was in our offering plan. This is what we all bought. Um, if this is illegal, how did we get a certificate of occupancy? The city right. basically didn't want to cop to the fact that some weird thing had happened. I'm not going to allege bribery. I'm definitely not alleging bribery, <laughs> um, but you know, something had happened. And so they got, we got a certificate of occupancy when we shouldn't have. And so we couldn't figure out what to do about this. And then August of 2017, um, this national grid, who was our gas provider showed up one day and just cut off the gas to the whole building and unannounced, like just came up one day and did it. And so <laughs> I called national Talk about grid. injury to insult. Yeah. yeah. Insult to injury. Mm. And so I called national grid cause I was a, a board member of our condo. So I called national grid and was like, you know, what the hell's going on? And, they're like the city told us to do it. So I called the department of buildings and they're like, you have a class one violation. Like you are in an unsafe unit. We had to cut the gas off for fear of like an explosion or something like that. And, you know, I got into it with the guy and basically walked him through the whole thing of how did we even get approved in the first place? And he didn't like what I was insinuating. And so he hung up on me. <laughs> and so for years, so we lawyered up and like went to battle with the developer who was still under warranty for providing, you know, boilers that were up to code. Um, the guy declared bankruptcy in the middle. And so anyway, long story short, very long story short, um, we lived for more than three years without heat, hot water and a functioning stove. You gotta and be so, kidding me. No, yeah. it's straight up. Are you kidding me? No. And so we were like showering <laughs> at the gym and, and it was your condo. So, I mean, you owned it. We owned it. Yep. Yeah. It wasn't like you were just going to be like, yeah, I'm right. not going to pay the rent first this month. homeowners, like, yeah. we were so uh. happy and then so unhappy. So <laughs> what happened was, you know, this was. It around... almost makes you never want to buy a home yeah. again. Yes. <laughs> Somehow we did again. But, you did. You know, you did. Like, um, so what happened was, you know, during this time period was when we started thinking about getting more serious about beer and when Sarah was getting kind of antsy in her professional career and starting to really Think about reclaiming this dream of, of craft beer and so rather than give up on it a second time we like went out and literally got a hot plate and so we just started brewing on a hot plate and like i had said earlier about you know the tasting parties are having bringing people together um this whole act of brewing on a hot plate, <laughs> getting emotional telling the story like the whole act of going through this process of like having this to look forward to and bringing people together was literally this is not hyperbole the only thing we had to look forward to during yeah. this time period. Mm. And so when we realized like, we really do want to go professional, we really do want to make this a thing. Um, we want to call this hot plate brewing company. And I remember like our, the guru who had like taught us um, how to brew better beer. He was like, wait, cause like our Instagram handle has always been at hot plate beer. He's like, well, what are you guys going to call yourself? You can't call yourself hot plate. We're like, no, we're calling ourselves hot plate. We're like, this is like an icon of resiliency. And so, um, so yeah, so that was the, the story there. And that was kind of when, um, we tried to take kind of like the worst thing that had happened to us and turn it around and try to make something happen out of it. Mm. And so we got very, very fortunate that during COVID the real estate market was so insane 
that no joke, we sold our condo without ever getting the heat and hot water. You never got the heat? No. And you sold the condo? Mm -hmm. The last time we took a shower in that place was August 16th, 2017. And we never showered in that place again. Yeah, so when COVID hit and the gym shut down, Uh, it was, we learned um, how to be really good at camp showers, like a it was, I got yeah. this like yeah this little like battery powered hose essentially yeah. that we would put in a garbage can and like put hot water in it to like yeah have a that shower. we had to heat up with a kettle it was a whole production so, yeah. yeah I mean like March and April of 2020 was insane because yep. we're sheltering in place the city's completely shut down all you hear are ambulances we have no heat and hot water and it was just like when there was you know there was sort of a moment where it was like it's time it was like that was the moment mm. like this like we cannot go back to our lives <laughs> the universe system. was shouting yeah yes. like, you, honestly it like was like if there's ever a sign <laughs> yes. from god it is this moment right now yeah and that was i think when we rolled up our sleeves and we're like okay let's let's figure it out let's figure out what we have to do yeah. like i said when we first were like let's start a brewery we had no idea what we we're doing so we all learned on the fly called in called favors you know brewery owners were super nice to us everyone around here has been super nice we've joined pretty much every brewery for a brew day. Um, people in the industry in general have been really mm. great at like letting us join brew days. And so it's been great, but it really did start with just that sense of like, we just bottomed out in life. So we, we got yeah. we got to make a change. <laughs> well, sometimes that's a great place to be yeah. to start. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's no fun when you're right at that moment. But, uh, but when you look, I guess when you look back, yeah. a lot of times it's like those really crappy moments that mm-hmm. it's like wow that was the beginning of of the next chapter yeah, so yeah, um and and you two are in it to win it yes. uh together and uh so you have each other yes. and and that's uh, and that's pretty amazing so uh, a great uh, partnership um a lot of love here and uh and i i wish you two the very best and i want to keep uh updating of course i'll see you downtown yes um <laughs> you know and uh and i know you keep doing some you know tastings and and other uh uh events and you'll be at third Thursday and the rest. So, um, so yeah, I absolutely wish you the best. Thank you um, so much. Thank you. Mike and Sarah, um, welcome to the Berkshires Thanks. and, uh, and I uh, love seeing you. Thanks. Thank you. We're happy awesome. to be here. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Kroll podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple podcasts or Spotify whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor Dot FM link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon.